Samuel Rutherford, a Puritan pastor who spent a lot of time in prison for preaching the word, said this in the depth of his um, trial. Oh, what I owe to the file, to the hammer and the furnace of the Lord Jesus. I know that he is no idle husbandman. He purposes a crop. We're told that God loves us, his children especially. We are told that Jesus Christ loves his church, his bride. That God loves us. God loves you and me. And yet, it seems that we continue to experience trial and difficulty and languish under the burden of those things. Um, and we begin maybe to wonder whether or not God truly loves us. I know as a parent, I do everything I can to keep my children from hardship and difficulty. And it seems that the Bible tells us that God does just the opposite. He, he leads us into trouble, it seems. And then occasionally we have somebody come across the, the face of history like Samuel Rutherford and says how wonderful it is to make the rest of us feel bad. You see, many might complain that intentionally putting people through hard times isn't loving. But being perfectly wise, our God, in His love, desires that we be fulfilled and be fruitful. And He knows that the only way to get us there is to take us through certain things to wean us from things that we shouldn't be attached to. So what is the purpose of trials? Last week we looked at eight biblical purposes of trials. And here in the book of James we read of the purpose of trials to reveal the authenticity of our faith. I don't know about you, but I want to know if my faith is authentic before I stand before the judgment seat. I'm, I'm certain that you would prefer the same. If you have your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 1. And I'm going to read for you verses 2 through 8. James 1, 2 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and will be given him. But let him ask in faith with, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we see here, just in, this, in these introductory remarks in this letter that we're studying, it shows us that, that trials are intended by God to produce something in us. To make us more Christ-like, to, to develop this thing called steadfastness, which leads to perfection, holiness, maturity. They, they, they demonstrate, the trials do, that we go through, whether or not our faith is real. If, if trials end up crushing you, if trials end up chasing you away from God and away from His church and away from His Word, what does that say about the authenticity of your faith? What are we to think would you say that a person who has heard the gospel, 
received it, believed it, responded with joy to it as a true believer? You and I would probably say, I think so, probably. Um, would we say his faith is authentic? I think we'd say, I, sounds like it. Well, what if after all those things happen, they hear the gospel, they receive it with joy, they believe it, and they do fall away? What are we to think then? Well, Jesus explains this very thing in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. Listen to how he explains those who fall away, those who've heard the gospel, received it with joy, and yet fall away. Jesus said, And the ones, that is the seed that falls on the rocky soil, on the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. They heard the gospel, they received it with joy. But these have no root. They believed for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. So what does this verse say about our case study? If, if, if they fall away, did they possess saving faith? Jesus says no. They did not. Well, what was the time of testing in this verse? It says that in a time of testing they fall away. That word testing is the same word James uses. Trials, testing of faith. Testing of faith, the trials you go through, one of the primary intentions of those is to reveal the authenticity of your faith. And if it is not real, to wake you up to the fact that you need to chase God, pursue Him, plead with Him for mercy. It's the same thing that Jesus was talking about in the parable of the sower in Luke 8. So as we look into James 1, I think it's important to understand that that trials that God intends to reveal our faith can never destroy our faith. Do you hear that? Trials that God intends to reveal the authenticity of our faith are never going to destroy our faith. God has designed trials simply to expose the authenticity of this thing we claim. So if our faith is destroyed by a trial, then it wasn't authentic faith to begin with. Because authentic faith is never destroyed by trial. It may cause our faith to waver and to stumble a little bit, but it'll never die if it's genuine. And so how we respond to trials is of utmost importance as Christians. How you and I react underneath pressures of life reveal to us the strength of our faith, the authenticity of our faith. So how can we navigate trials that are inevitable? How are we going to proceed through them and not be crushed and not be exposed as um, having a fallacious faith? What are we to expect if our, if our faith begins to waver? How are we supposed to deal with this? Well, that's what we're looking into here. To, to summarize what I want to share with you today, I want to continue looking at the first section of James here to help you see how trials are actually intended by God for your good, for my good. So the first attitude, the first navigation tool, if you will, that I talked about last week was having a right attitude. And what was that attitude? An attitude of joy. If your faith is real, if, if it's authentic, your response to trials will be joyful. Now, 
That doesn't mean you'll, you'll hit it out of the park every single time in that regard. There are times when you may fail in this department. But remember what I said last week about the trajectory of your faith, the, the direction of your life? Is it, is it leaning Godward or is it leaning worldward and selfward? The second navigation tool that, that we can use that we saw in the text here is a, a right understanding. You see this in verse 2, count it all joy. There's the first attitude when you encountered various trials. And then the second in verse 3, for you know, you know something about trials, James says. You know the purpose of those trials. You know what they're intended to do. And so because you know these things, because you have a right understanding, you can be joyful in them. You know that God is up to something good in your life, and so you can actually be joyful, whether or not you smile. Today, I want to get into the third navigation tool that we see in this text, and it's seen in verse 4. Verse 4 says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And I've called this navigation tool a right will. A right will, and that right will is submissive. It's a submissive will. Let steadfastness do its work. Let the trials do what God has intended them to do. That's the idea here. As a society, we're quick to insulate ourselves from any potential discomfort. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to prepare for adversity and try to avoid hardship if you can. We might even say that's wise. But to complain, to manipulate, to resent what God is doing, is that's the thing we want to avoid. And the submissive will is in submission to God and His sovereign activity in our daily lives. Once we begin to practice the joyful attitude about what God is doing, which is based on our knowledge that He is up to something for our good, we can actually joyfully submit to everything that we're facing. Theoretically, right? We read in Hebrews 11, in fact, that some, in some cases in history of God's people, um, there were those who actually embraced trials to the, the degree that they refused to get out of them even when they had the chance. Remember that? Hebrews 11? Since they knew that it was in the trial that they experienced that deep intimacy with God and experienced His personal love for them and joy in, in seeing Him meet them in that dark place, they didn't leave the trial when they were given the freedom to do so. Now listen to how David, King David, submitted to God's work in his life. Psalm 131 says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. You see David's submission there to his circumstances? He had learned to just rest in whatever God brought his way. He knew that his well-being was in God's hands, not in his own effort and work and scrambling to make things better. He just submitted to what God was doing through his trials. Because he had the right attitude of joy and the right understanding of God's purpose in his trials, he could simply submit 
to God, believing that he, God had his best in mind, that God was for him, not against him. So what is the purpose of trials according to verse 4? Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's quite the result, isn't it? That, that's a, a wonderful direction for our lives. I think we all agree with that. But the word perfect in verse 4 have caused some to be confused about uh, this idea of perfection in the Christian life. Is it possible for you and me to be morally perfect before we see Jesus? There are those Christians who believe and teach these things. Um, the, the, the word actually isn't referring to sinlessness or moral perfection. It's referring to something that is fully developed or mature. That's what the word perfection means here in verse 4. It's, it's, uh, it's a way of saying that, that trials do their God-intended purpose in our lives to work out a spiritual maturity in God's people. That's the idea behind that word. It's the same word that Paul used in Philippians 3, let those of you who are mature think this way. It's not perfection, it's, it's a maturity in facing life. The word complete in that same verse, verse 4, comes from the Greek word that means to be whole. Does that make sense to you? It's where we get our word hologram from. It's a, a three-dimensional concept that gives us an accurate and complete picture, uh, maybe even three-dimensional there, that, that would help us clearly see what it is we're looking at. And just to be sure we don't misunderstand what he's saying here about per perfection, he says, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. This is the goal of the trials that God sends our way, to be mature, to be complete, to lack nothing, um, not to be morally perfect. That's the goal. But how do we get there? How do we proceed? And I want to suggest to you that James is, is recommending the idea of submission to trials. Do you submit to your trials? You know, um, when you're, well, at least when I was in junior high, we had to take wrestling in PE. And uh, we would, you know, the coach was teaching us different things and different moves. And if we got into a place where something hurt too much, we just had to say, uncle. Remember those days? Well, uh, this is somewhat like that. But that's not the kind of submission we're after. Now, we're after a willing submission, not a submission that's based on the, the opposite of a painful alternative. So, in order to help you understand that, I want to ask you to think about Abraham's experience in Genesis 22 and how he submitted to that trial. Do you remember what happened in that chapter? Uh, God told Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, the son he loved, uh, on a three-day journey to sacrifice him as a burnt offering, to kill him. Now, you can imagine the, the horror that Abraham experienced when he heard that command. But Abraham's response to that command was amazing. You remember, he didn't, he didn't complain, he didn't argue, he, he didn't remind God of his promise that this was, the, this was the promised son, you can't do this to me. No, that's not what he did. He didn't do any of those things. He didn't even demand an explanation. 
It says he got up early the next morning and went to Moriah. He actually just did what God said. He submitted to it and believed that God was right. Talk about a lesson in immediate submission. He knew that God had a purpose. He, he believed, he joyfully believed that God was for him. And so he submitted himself under that trial. The next navigation tool that we're going to see is found in verses 5 through 8. And this is a right prayer. A right prayer. This section, by the way, is more about prayer than it is about wisdom. But it is a prayer for wisdom. Let's, let's look at, let's dissect this a little bit. I want you to, first of all, recognize your need for wisdom. Um, I doubt anybody would say, I've got it all together. Um, I don't need anybody's wisdom. I've got it figured out. But verse 5 says, do any of you lack wisdom? And I want you to notice how he uses a word there to connect maturity in verse 4 with your need in verse 5. You see that there? If any of you lacks wisdom, how did he end verse 4? Lacking nothing. There's the connecting word. If you, if you lack wisdom, you're not complete. <laughs> you're not as spiritually mature as you could be. You're, you're lacking something, and it's called wisdom. Do you lack wisdom? Well, if you're less than, if you're less than perfect in your spiritual condition, then you're lacking wisdom in one degree or another. This includes all of us, by the way, in case you didn't figure that out already. The reason we need to pray for wisdom is that even though we may be joyful in trusting God's purposes in our trials, we still may be uncertain of what to do in the midst of those trials. Have you ever found yourself there? Uh, submitting to God, acknowledging that he's at work in your life, but really not knowing what to do in the difficulty you're in? What would be the right thing to do? Well, that's where God comes in. God, being all wise, says he's willing and anxious to give wisdom, grant wisdom to those who ask. So that we can faithfully navigate our circumstances to the glory of God and, and the, the joy of God's people, including the one going through it. Proverbs 3 Five through seven is a familiar passage to all of us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Being wise in your own eyes is not fearing the Lord. <laughs> um, is going in the way of evil. Trusting in the Lord Pleading his wisdom is the idea. But what kind of wisdom are we talking about here? Philosophical wisdom? Philosophical insight? Psychological evaluation? No, the kind of wisdom that James is talking about, that Proverbs 1 and 2 are talking about, um, that are spoken of repeatedly in Scripture, that kind of wisdom is a wisdom to do the right thing 
consistently in every circumstance. That's the wisdom of God. It's a wisdom to understand your circumstances and respond to them in a godly way. And that's not easy, which is why we ask God for that kind of wisdom. It's the kind of wisdom that James is referring to in chapter 3 of this same epistle. He says this in verse 17, The wisdom from above, listen to God's wisdom, is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. If you have that kind of wisdom, you'll be able to navigate the difficult circumstances of your life, whatever they are. You see, God isn't going to grant a request to get out of a trial until the purpose for that trial is fulfilled. Right? You, you don't go to the dentist and get a cavity half drilled out. You stay in the seat until he gets it done. Right? And you leave. You may be drooling when you leave, but it's done. It's the same in life. You don't get out of a trial until God accomplishes his purpose. And then you are free to leave. So let's not confuse this morning the promise for wisdom in verse 5 for a promise to escape or minimize a trial or hardship. That's not what James is saying. Godly wisdom acts as a guide through trials is a way to think about it. I think godly wisdom is the kind of thing that you and I need when we're under that difficult burden. So when you're struggling to know what to do about a certain relationship or, or, or what to do about a financial crisis that you're in or maybe what to do about a, a challenging family situation that you find yourself in, this is the kind of wisdom that you need and that God is offering. Wisdom to do the right thing based on his knowledge in that circumstance. And that's, by the way, not the kind of wisdom that you're going to get by pursuing the latest psychological journal or maybe even some, you know, contemporary popular blog. Because God's wisdom isn't an escape hatch. It's, it's a flashlight, really, for the darkness that we're in. Now, let's look at the next thing that needs to be unpacked here as we think about this wisdom that's from above that we're praying for, that God will grant us to help us navigate the trial. The grantor of this, of course, we know it's God. But I want you to, to see something here in verse 5 um, that I think is pretty important. We're going to see in verse 5 that we have a God who is a giving God. In fact, if you look at the word order in the original language, it's very interesting. The word gives in the original language actually modifies the word God. Now, you English majors know what that means. <laughs> it's calling God a giving God. This is, this is what God does. It's in his nature. He gives. For God so loved the world that he gave. God is giving he loves to give. He loves to meet needs. He loves to fulfill the purposes for which he's called us to. And he does that through giving. Giving wisdom. Giving insight. Giving strength. Giving Christ. 
giving the Holy Spirit. You remember what Jesus said about the Father in, in Matthew 7? Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God is a giving God. He is, he is not up there thinking of ways to make you squirm. And I think that's kind of the popular idea of who God is, even in the church. God is for us. He's a giving God. Think of all you have. Is there anything that he hasn't given in that list? No, he's a giving God. And what does this giving God do in response to the requests of his children for wisdom? It says there in verse 5 that he gives generously without reproach. What does that mean? What does reproach mean? Well, it means to reprimand or insult. You know, God would have cause to give with reproach, wouldn't he? <laughs> oh, you peasants, here you go. You know, take a crumb. That would be a reproachful gift, an insulting gift, but that is not the way God does it. He doesn't remind us of our failures or remind us of how undeserving we are of his favor. You know, the way we might think a condescending person might treat us. He gives without hesitation, reluctance, or reservation. He's anxious to give because he's a giving God. He actually enjoys giving. Giving without reproach means that when we ask in faith for wisdom to be able to navigate the trials in such a way that will bring glory to God and, and encouragement to his people and joy to our own hearts, that he gives liberally. You see that? Generously, it says in verse 5. He holds nothing back. He pours out his wisdom for us abundantly because he wants us to succeed. Now let's look at the means Continuing to unpack this pursuit of wisdom, how is it that we're supposed to get to this wisdom? What's, what do the verses say here? If any of you lacks wisdom, what are we supposed to do? Pray, right? I want to say fervent prayer is what we should be doing. You may be sitting here saying, wait a minute, if God's so liberal in all of his giving of wisdom... How come I'm still lacking? I've asked for wisdom. I haven't received much. Or I've asked for wisdom. I'm still confused. What's up? What is James saying that God will do here? What is it exactly he's going to give me? I've seemed to ask and I don't seem to have. Is James saying that God's going to give you all the insight on every subject you happen to encounter or be interested in? Is James saying that if you'll just simply ask God what stock to buy, he'll tell you and you'll become a millionaire? I wish I would have bought Amazon three or four years ago. Why didn't God give me that? I asked for wisdom. You know, I bought some stock that tanked. Is that what James is saying? 
Of course not. James 4.3 gives us a little clarity here. Let me read it for you. You do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Is it possible that the wisdom you're asking for is just to get out of the discomfort? Is it possible that the wisdom you're asking for is just to get ahead of your neighbor or to look a little better than your spouse or coworker? Are you asking for wisdom to spend it on your passions, maybe? That's why you haven't received? Jesus says something similar in John 14 to help us understand this same issue of requesting things from him. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Not that you will be glorified, but the Father will be glorified. So asking for something selfish is not made right by adding the tag in Jesus' name. Please give me that Ferrari. Um, No, James is directing a specific kind of prayer. And for those of you who are still finding yourselves thrashing around in the midst of a trial, never-ending trial, I want you to listen closely to this. He says in James 5, verse 16, he unpacks it a little bit later on in the book, which he does throughout this book. He, he brings up an issue, and then two or three chapters later, he answers it. And this is what he says in James 5, 16. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Not the short, flippant prayer. In verse 5, we're asking for godly wisdom that results in God's glory. And our joy. And let me just add this sidelight here. Wisdom is different than knowledge. You're aware of that, right? Wisdom is the understanding needed to live to the glory of God in the circumstance you are currently in, especially in trial. It's not only knowledge, but it's the willingness to apply the knowledge that you have that God has given to your daily circumstances. True godly wisdom is needed to understand the trials of life that we all go through. The wisdom that's from above, that we saw last week in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, is a blessing from God, which is why James says we need to ask God for it. And this this wisdom from God is is a light that that, uh, we receive from God that, that clarifies the path that we're on. So where do you go? When you need strength and direction in the face of a difficulty you're facing? Maybe something that just seems super burdensome or perplexing to you. Where do you go? Um, Is it to some human resource? Do you immediately run to the psychological health journal on the website or your favorite blogger or some worldly friend that you've had a good time with in the past? You see, a great promise from Scripture is that God will give His wisdom to those who need it and ask for it. What a wonderful promise. We go to God for His wisdom. Asking for wisdom from God in verse 5 isn't a passing thought or a whimsical wish sent heavenward. No, it's a fervent approach to God. That's what James is saying. 
It's an asking with all of your heart, as Jeremiah 29:13 says. It's a rustling in prayer for God's wisdom, for God to act, for God to give direction. Do you remember Epaphras in Colossians chapter 4? This is what Paul said about him. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you. Remember, Paul was in prison here, and he's, Epaphras was visiting him in prison. And so Paul was writing back to the Colossian church and said, Hey, your friend Epaphras is here with me. He greets you. And by the way, he's always laboring fervently for you in prayer. He's struggling in prayer for you. Why? Look at what Paul says here is the point of Epaphras' struggle. That you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. Doesn't that sound familiar to James? Perfect and complete. Is it possible maybe that the reason that we aren't perfect, complete, and full of wisdom because we haven't struggled like Epaphras in prayer? That we haven't really sought God as we should? When we ask this, we're asking for godly joy. In the midst of difficult circumstances, we're asking for godly direction for important decisions that we're trying to navigate through difficult places. We're asking that God would be glorified in our circumstances. One of the purposes in trials, friends, is to drive us to God. That's why I think prayer is the focus here, not necessarily wisdom. Has that happened in your experience? Have your trials driven you Godward? This navigation tool here in verses 5 through 8 is critical, I think, to our development as growing Christians because it, it creates a, uh, a need for communion with God. Samuel Rutherford said, There is no sweeter fellowship with Christ than to bring our wounds and sores to Him. You may have experienced that because of what you've been through. Maybe you've been through some very wounding times. If you have and you've been uh, interested in seeking God's wisdom through it, you'll experienced this sweet communion with God in those times, which is why the believers in Hebrews 11 didn't want to leave those difficult times. Verse 5 is a command. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let him pray. Pray, in other words. Trials are intended to drive us to God, to force us to pray, and then after we have fervently prayed and asked God, God's wisdom, that we actually seek out his wisdom. And where is, where is his wisdom found? In his word. In the counsel of godly guides. Seasoned saints, people who've been through those things before, elders, pastors, teachers in the church, asking, it's asking them, what should I do? What would God have me do? Here's my circumstance. You know scripture. What do you think God would have me do here? Is the wise thing to do. You know, a lot of people um, complain about their ongoing trials and, and even Suggest that they've asked God for wisdom. I don't know why he's not answering, but I still remain here in this darkness. I've been here for quite some time. It's like asking for directions in your car when you have a map sitting on the seat beside you. 
Are you looking at the map? Where is God's wisdom found? It's not some mystical thing that's going to pop into your head, you know, after some weird experience. No, it's, it's in your hands. It's called God's Word. Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you seek it out? Do you talk to those who know it? So if you're experiencing a particularly long and difficult situation that doesn't seem to end, what, what is happening? Maybe you've been languishing in a sad and unfulfilling and difficult marriage. Maybe you find yourself in a job that's especially burdensome, burdensome or maybe in life without a job that's particularly difficult. Now, I, don't want to, I don't want to give you any false hope here because your view of what marriage should be may be the problem if your marriage is in trouble. Maybe your view of the Christian life is the issue. Maybe you thought that getting married to a Christian man was going to make everything perfect. But, that's for a later counseling session. <laughs> Assuming that you have an accurate view of marriage that doesn't see your spouse as your source of identity and joy. Remember, marriage is about holiness, not happiness. And assuming you know the point of the Christian life, that it includes trials that refine us, are your trials still remaining and not ending? Did you still not know what to do in your current circumstance? If not, James is saying, examine the fervency of your request for wisdom. Are you really serious about it, or is it just like in passing, well, God, if you want to chime in here any time, it'd be good. No. Examine the fervency of your prayers. Examine the effort with which you have sought God's counsel. As I referred to earlier, Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me. When? When you seek me with all your heart. Have you done that? Are you accessing all the means that God has placed at your disposal? Are you looking at the map? Verse 5 is a command to pray for wisdom when you recognize that there are areas in your life, even in your physical life, which are out of place. Now let's look at the qualifier. Let's, let's, let's finish our time up this morning with this. The condition or the stipulation of God answering, God granting wisdom that you're asking for. And what is that? Faith, of course. You see that there? If he lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith, without doubting. Without doubting. For he, the one who doubts, is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let me try to help you understand what it means to ask for wisdom in faith. And this is going to sound vaguely familiar to the last point. First, I'll let you know what it's not. Asking for wisdom in faith is not complaining to God about your circumstances. It's not defending yourself about a past decision. It's not manipulating your circumstances to get out of your trial. 
It's not dishonest gain if you are in need of money. It's not blaming God for your current crisis and believing that you could have done it better if God would have just let you try. No, it's none of those things. Do you remember hearing Proverbs 2, 1 through 8 read this morning? That's our approach to godly wisdom. The prayer of faith means that you seek God with all your heart. That's the condition. You are with all your heart seeking him, believing what he said, what he promised to do for those who need wisdom. That's the stipulation. As I said, it's an extension of the means of fervent prayer. This is how you go about procuring wisdom when it's needed. You pray, you plead, you read the word, you study the word, you seek out wisdom from trusted fellow believers. That's how you come to God's wisdom. You mine for wisdom like a gold miner mines for gold. You know, he, he doesn't just, you know, look on the side of the hill and say, I don't see anything there. No, you dig in. You, you do some hard work. Asking God for wisdom is asking God for the will to be obedient faithfully in your current circumstances. James has some very harsh things to say about people who claim they want wisdom but never seem to find it. Verses 5 through 8 can actually be a little bit concerning to us. That, that person who weakly or flippantly asks for wisdom or direction in the trial without actually fervently doing so, James calls a double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. James is saying that God isn't going to grant wisdom to a pragmatist who will use whatever works. They might say, if the world can provide some relief from the trial, then I'll go with that. If alcohol can provide some relief, then I'll go with that. If God wants to jump here at any time, I'm open to it. No. The one who receives wisdom from God is the one who will ask him, seek out his wisdom, knock at his door. That's the person of faith. That's the opposite of someone who's double-minded, the double-minded man is the one who says that they believe God, but get angry and upset if they encounter a trial. The person finds himself in a God-ordained quandary and begins to complain and resist God, resist God's people. I don't want to hear another verse from you. I'm tired of the verses. I've asked God for wisdom for years and nothing's changed. That's a double-minded man. That person is the perpetual victim. We all know people like this. They claim uh, that, that nothing ever seems to go their way. The double-minded person is unstable in all their ways, will always be struggling just to keep their heads above water. It's a constant drama. Interestingly, James actually calls this person the double-minded person, the unstable person, in the original language, the dual-souled individual. Dual-souled individual. They want the best the world can offer and the best the church can offer. And in their wisdom, they'll decide which to choose or follow. Whatever looks the best at the moment is what they're going to do. The language of verses 6 through 8 is pretty strong. 
James 4, 4, he said that if you make yourself a friend of the world, you're going to eliminate the God option. Remember that, James 4, 4? You're either friends with God or you're friends with the world. You can't have it both ways. If you're a dual-souled person, James is saying, take a long look at the authenticity of your faith. James 4, 8, you know, you're thinking, wow, <laughs> I've got a lot of bad signs in my life. This is not encouraging, Pastor John. Please stop. Let me go home to my trial. <laughs> it's better than this. Now, remember God is a good and giving God. Even to the double-minded person, even to the dual-souled person, God is good. Listen to you, listen to this, you who may feel hopeless right now. James 4, 8, what a beautiful remedy. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Doesn't that seem really simple? And yet that's the answer. Even if you're dual-souled. Look what he says. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, repent. You sinners, purify your hearts, repent. And what's he say? You double-minded. This is even good for you. This is a promise for you. You double-minded, dual-souled individuals have hope. That's really good news. God is a giving God. Let me wrap this up. Authentic faith is a faith that can joyfully face trials because it knows that God is faithful and has a good purpose for every difficulty. And when a particularly challenging trial comes that requires wisdom beyond their capability, the genuine believer will ask God for his wisdom and seek it out fervently, not vacillating between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Authentic faith rests in God's truth. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Come to Jesus, the friend of sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we are in such need of Christ. We all lack wisdom. Your word has exposed us this morning once again, and yet not without hope, not without a loving, wooing Savior calling us to himself. I pray that, that through your Holy Spirit, through the, the wooing Savior that loves us, we would come that we would return to Christ, that we would stop leaning on our own understanding, but we would acknowledge you and seek your wisdom. Father, take these truths from your word and, and drive them deep into our souls. Encourage our hearts by way of your truth through the application of your spirit. Help us understand, help us apply. 
We thank you for these wonderful promises. In Jesus' name, amen.